0: topic of our Dhamma talk this evening is moving forward, full steam. Now, connecting back to a number of fatna discourses given during the earlier part of fatna this retreat namely on the roots of unwholesomeness and the roots of wholesomeness in that certain context at the beginning of every of those satna dhamma talks there was satna this reflection that the Buddha offered one. Often should one reflect upon one's own mind thus. For a long time has this mind been defiled by greed, by hatred, by delusion. Mental defilements make beings impure, mental cleansing purifies them. So in the course of uh, this retreat, we've all had ample opportunities, not only to reflect upon the state of one's own mind, but actually taking a really close look at it. Now, what we have fitness seen there, how does that compare? with the aims or the goals of the mindfulness practice. <laughs> the Satipatthana Sutta, which is certainly fundamental to the work we are doing here, in its certain prologue, states the following, the practice of Satipatthana, the meditation, leads to the purification of the mind, leads to the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation, to the complete destruction of physical pain and mental distress, the entering of the right path, and finally, to the attainment of Nibbana. Elsewhere, in the text, it is stated that the practice of Fatna satipatthana will lead to three spiritual attainments, namely purity, knowledge and Nibbana. Visuddhim Jnanam dayo awati in the pali scriptural language and then we still have other uh, passages that uh, speak of you know, the goal of you know, this practice and you know, for instance in this conversation between the wanderer Kundalaya and certain the Buddha, where Kundalaya keeps quizzing the Buddha about the benefits and the fruit of of the practice, and what then follows is the Buddha. Mentioning one by one the benefits to uh, be gained. So the utmost benefit comes as uh, the gaining of true knowledge and liberation, vijja, pala, anisamso, in the Pali scriptural language. And this certainly is based on the seven factors of enlightenment. And those certain seven factors of enlightenment are based on the three kinds, on the four establishments of mindfulness. And those four establishments of mindfulness in turn depend on the three kinds of wholesome conduct, and those, in turn, depend on the restraint of the sense faculties. So, in essence, according to this certain passage in the text, certain of the goal is the uh, realization of knowledge and certain liberation, true knowledge and liberation. A text from the first volume of the Anguttara Nikaya, section 158-159, states the following. When greed, hatred and delusion are abandoned, one neither aims at one's own harm, nor at the harm of others, nor at the harm of both and one will not suffer pain and grief in one's mind. In that sense, is Nibbana visible here and now. If one experiences this complete elimination of greed, the complete elimination of hatred, and the complete elimination of delusion, in that sense, is Nibbāna visible here and now. Of immediate result, inviting to come and see onward, leading to be directly experienced by the wise. And yet another passage from you know, the anguttara nikaya this certain time from the the threes the chapter of the threes discourse 67 you near know, says an arahant knows this once there was greed and that was unwholesome now that is no more and so it is well once there was hatred and that was unwholesome now that is no more and so it is well once there was delusion and that was unwholesome now that is no more and so it is well thus arahant and arahant lives even during his or her lifetime free of cravings, hunger, stilled and cooled, of passions, heat, feeling happy with the heart and, and certainly with one's heart becomes holy. So the question then to all of us, having reflected on greed, hatred, and delusion, having carefully investigated, examined our own mind. Would you say you have achieved any of those goals mentioned so far? Still has some work to do. Ah, still has some work to do. Anyone else? (laughs) You are we are so lucky to have a few days of practice left. <laughs> and so today's Dhamma talk is uh, meant specifically to encourage you uh, to keep up the practice during these remaining days. Now It is worth pursuing the Dhamma practice in an intensive form, as well as certainly in a less intensive form outside of retreat, with an goal, with an intention to gain well other forms of happiness other than ordinary sensual uh, uh, happiness and the Buddha has spoken of a number of kinds of uh, happiness that are available to uh, those who practice his teachings for instance there is uh, the happiness of uh, observing precepts and uh, a restraining one's sudden senses. There is further and uh, more the happiness that uh, uh, comes when engaging in the summertime meditation, especially when uh, the jhanic factor of sukha, of happiness, arises. And in the context of the Vipassana practice, we have the imperfections of insight, there too, or as part of those imperfections, we have um, happiness, sukha, which already is very different from the ordinary, worldly uh, happiness that is based on the indulgence in sense pleasures. Now, as we uh, go along, there are other forms of uh, happiness, namely, the happiness of uh, a mind that, uh, that is uh, well uh, balanced, and uh, finally also uh, the happiness that uh, the ultimate form of happiness that certainly comes with the realization of nibbana. Now. If upon our close examination of our own stream of consciousness, we come to the conclusion there is still unwholesomeness left namely in the form of greed, hatred or uh, delusion or any of the other unwholesome mental states, well uh, then we should uh, make a great effort uh, towards uh, the um, abandoning of those unskillful states. And as you will surely uh, remember, the Buddha has boldly uh, stated one can Uh, or it is possible to abandon what is unskillful, what is unwholesome. If it were not possible, he would not uh, uh, encourage us to do so. So, when we have to conclude that the stream of consciousness still is, or or in the stream of consciousness, still some unwholesomeness arises, then it's time to make good use of effort, viriya, in the Pali scriptural language. And in regard to effort, the Buddha has spoken of four the four kinds of supreme effort, samapadana, in the Pali scriptural language. And those four forms, in short, consist of the effort In the first place, to avoid unwholesome states. The second, certainly, to the effort to abandon unwholesome states that have already arisen and then as number three, the effort to develop wholesome states that have arisen already, such as the seven enlightenment factors. And finally, as number four, we have the effort to maintain wholesome states that are present already. so when it comes certain you know, to the wholesome states that have not yet uh, arisen one passage shutness is herein a retreatant rouses his or her will to arouse wholesome states that have not yet arisen and the person makes effort, steers up his or her energy, exerts the mind and strives. And among those qualities that could be aroused are the performing of acts of generosity, observing an ethical code of conduct, observing the precepts, engaging in the mindfulness meditation, Or uh, and else engaging in loving kindness, meditation, or compassion um, and mental development through compassion and so on. In the course of an intensive retreat, all sorts of difficulties might arise. Especially towards the end of a retreat, one might uh, you know, feel somewhat exhausted the energy is drained, both physical as well as mental. And there may still be arising various pains and aches in the body, various difficult mental states or factors, sleepiness at times might creep in, and so on and so forth. So it is under these kind of circumstances that suddenly we need to resort to effort The exertion of further effort becomes possible through uh, various might certainly become possible you know, through um, a number of different you know, reflections. One of further them might be: today the effort should be made. Who knows if tomorrow death will come? So with the end of uh, the retreat coming uh, closer one uh, might reflect on uh, the almost perfect uh, conditions that have been present here uh, during uh, this retreat and soon this will be over. And so these conditions conducive to good meditation practice will be no more for some time. And one will have to return to one's home base. And so conditions there might not necessarily be all that conducive to intensive mindfulness practice. One could further reflect on uh, the fact that this path of Vipassana uh, practice can be taken only by energetic people, such as uh, Buddhas independently enlightened Buddhas, Noble Ones, and so on. And this path that we find ourselves on is not a path for those who are slack in the practice and uh, who uh, already want to uh, stop practicing intensively now as long As we have not realized that yet the path, the noble path of stream entry then will be sitting between two chairs having given up the comfort and luxury of our uh, worldly life at home on the one hand side on the other hand, not yet having reached you know, the um, happiness of nibbana, and so if we do not certainly reach, or if we do not realize that noble path of stream entry, there um, is a possibility to um, uh, to take rebirth in a state of loss. And so as long as certain we have this opportunity to practice, then to make curtain good use of it. Now Intensity of uh, meditation practice is an aspect that uh, the Venerable Mahasi Sayadaw of Burma has certainly very much highlighted. And he says noble path and fruition knowledge are attained only when there's this kind of gathering momentum. The meditative process is like that of producing fire by energetically and unremittingly rubbing two sticks of wood together so as to attain the necessary intensity of heat. Different aspects Contribute to the intensity of one's practice among those we have you know, the continuity of effort. Further, and to ensure the continuity, of course, of one's mindfulness as well as concentration. What might certainly further help is to keep one's own mind active and alert by mm, asking oneself the question what am i knowing now and what am i knowing now and now and now and so on so if one does that for some period of time let's say 10, 15, 20 minutes, one will see already that uh, the mind will be much more focused. It's not uncommon for uh, retreatants that suddenly the mind, uh, especially towards the end of a retreat, that the mind wanders off into what? Into? Into? Samsara. <laughs> into feud, into the future. And uh, we want to keep the mind as much as possible in the present moment. So whenever it goes off into the future, immediately we want to recognize this, label this, observe it and know its nature and bring the attention back to the present moment. and now, the attitude with which we practice will also co- either positively or negatively contribute you know, to the intensity of our meditation practice So it's worth taking a closer look at certain various attitudes and what they do to the mind, how they influence our way of practicing. Now, a retreatant might be very goal-oriented in his or her practice, trying to recreate certain certain experiences, having high expectations entertaining you know, wishes and desires so this certain particular attitude is certainly then influenced by which mental state desire greed yes that's correct and if one were you know, to Uh, take a pushy attitude, trying to control, manipulate one's experiences, being pretty ego-centered, planning out certain one's own uh, practice, and then which mental factor underlies this attitude, be might be there to some extent wrong view so assuming assuming the presence of a self assuming that the self is in control and uh, should be controlling should be manipulating one's experiences now as uh, you Will have Fatna seen in the course of Fatna, this retreat, Uh, practicing with this kind of an attitude is very beneficial. Not at all. There's yet another attitude um, um, that one can find among retreatants, namely. That of comparing one's experiences with those of others, and so, you know, then feeling either better or equal or less you know, than other yogis. When, for instance, during interviews, certain instructions are being given, then such a retreatant might think, well, uh, this I know already, there is no need to listen to this. Now, the underlying mental factor here, of course, is delusion, yes, and more specifically comparing oneself to others. Conceit. 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 That's correct. Pride and conceit. Uh, when confusion is suddenly the dominating force, then retreatance well, um, may end up you know, being confused about their experiences, not understanding what is suddenly going on. Out of out of an attitude that is based in anger, we. May to try to get rid of unpleasant experiences, we may want to resist uh, instructions or uh, the meditation method or whatever else it might be. An overly skeptical attitude towards Satna, the teachings, the practice, one's own ability to do the practice, having little regard or esteem for the mindfulness meditation itself. Those um, or that particular attitude is Satna based in skeptical doubt. And a retreatant who is certainly full of sceptical doubt, will have a hard time to move ahead full force. When one takes an easy-going, casual, careless, neglectful attitude towards certain practice and unconcerned, inattentive uh, approach, well, then this attitude is based in wrongful mindfulness. One could certainly go on with this list uh, uh, even uh, further. to give you still one or two more examples, namely, n- when the attitude, one's attitude towards practice, is certain based in either having or exerting excessive effort, or um, in the other case, n- not exerting sufficient effort, so there is a, a, a lack of effort. In the first case, it leads to getting all tense. It may lead a retreatant to willfully practice you know, through the whole night, even if the practice does not necessarily call for it. In the case of a deficient certain effort, well, the mind will be, or the retreatant will be sluggish, unprepared, you know, to unprepared for you know, good action, and disinclination to exert oneself fully will be there. So these are just some attitudes that certain yogis on occasion bring towards certain practice and among these do you see any wholesome attitude? anyone? not a single one all of them unwholesome attitudes, practicing with any of those attitudes will have a negative impact on one's own meditation practice. Now, simply put, the best attitudes towards certain practice are those that are Uh, based in wholesome mental qualities such as um, a great appreciation for the Dhamma and so appreciation for the Dhamma having faith in the Buddha Dhamma and Satya Sangha Then, attitudes that are based in non-greed, non-hatred, and certain non-delusion, an attitude that is based in humility, not being terribly opinionated about certain things. An attitude that is certainly based in balanced effort and also an attitude that certainly is based in already some degree of intuitive understanding so overall it's based on to practice with a calm and certain detached attitude of mind, taking interest in what is happening. So if, for instance, objects are breaking up, then to take much interest in this, wanting to find out how this is actually happening in detail, and not just uh, skimming over the surface of objects. Maintaining an allowing attitude, this too helps allowing you know, for different experiences to come up, even if at first time, you know, they seem a bit, uh, um, uh, well, um, unusual. When we practice we want to do so with a gentle attitude and not approach the meditation in a forceful manner. Furthermore, we want to keep the mind free from concepts and sudden practice with as much care and respect as possible with utter devotion uh, to the practice, surrendering uh, to the practice. So it is with wholesome mental states that this mindfulness meditation is done best. Now, in order to highlight the aspect of practicing with an attitude of care and, and uh, respect. Allow me to give you a brief simile, namely the simile of an owner of a vintage car. Now, you might most of you will know what certain vintage cars are those are vehicles that were manufactured you know, during the so-called vintage era which uh, is said to have started in uh, 1919 and went until 1930 and During that certain era, all sorts of vehicles, famous uh, vehicles, were uh, manufactured and sold. And among them, we have the Model A20 automobile, we also have the 1926 Bentley Speed 6 Tour. Apparently, there is also a Ranger 4 and the 1925 Flint car. Now, any of those cars nowadays would be cheap to purchase. They'll be pretty expensive. So imagine that you are the owner of one of those vintage cars. So, uh, you will be so concerned about your vintage car. You might even arrange for a special, possibly even heated garage for your vintage car. Every day you will go and take a closer look at it. You might shine it up. Um, uh, thoroughly, and certainly so, you know, on a sunny day, you might take your vintage car and try, you know, slowly drive it around town. And on the special occasions when there's a rally of vintage cars, so other owners certainly you know, will also you know, then uh demonstrate or or drive around demonstrating the beauty of their cars now in driving around with one's a vintage car as an owner obviously one will make uh, sure that other cars do not bump into one's own vintage car one will further make sure you know, that one will not bump into others' uh, uh, cars. Now, just like the owner of a vintage car is very much concerned about his or her vintage car, so too we should be extremely concerned about our own practice and the reason here being that the teachings of the Buddha are what as old as the vintage cars much older so the teachings of the Buddha are much more are much older and therefore much more precious than any of the vintage cars. So when we do engage in mindfulness-satna meditation, then we want to do so with great care and respect, taking every single movement of footna the body, uh, as an opportunity to carefully observe and know what is going on. Now, since most of you have come to appreciate the slowing down of all activities, please keep this up until the very end of uh, this very retreat, and you will not regret it. Obviously, if you have a yogi you know, job to perform, you know, then you know, this is a different story. Then you need to you know, speed up you know, somewhat. When it when the time comes to clean up one's room, there too you know, we need to you know, do this a bit more quickly. But nonetheless, we'll try to keep do things. Uh, other uh, non-yogi jobs, uh, non-cleaning jobs, as slowly as possible. And this slowing down uh, will um, help us uh, to further uh, deepen our practice and who knows within the remaining uh, two days until uh, the end of uh, this retreat your meditation practice might still um, go even a bit further. Allow me to conclude today's Satna Dhamma talk by wishing may you make good use of the remaining time that you have here, may you Cherish this precious opportunity that you have during this Sutna retreat and uh, may you go ahead with full force. And this is it for now.